The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So as you know, I've been doing this thing every month, calling it Summit Saturdays. And we go out once a month and we climb a, a different summit in Southern Oregon. It's been a lot of fun. Yesterday we did uh, Grayback Mountain in Josephine County. Anybody here ever climbed Grayback Mountain? Oh, sweet. Uh, you should have been there yesterday morning. I sent an email out saying, okay, we usually meet at 7 a.m., but let's meet at 6 a.m. in Applegate. And so I think everybody said like, yeah, whatever. I'm not going to get up at 4 in the morning. But we had eight people who climbed the mountain yesterday, and it was great. First four miles is kind of on trail. It's all uphill, but it's on trail. It's, it's relatively straightforward hiking. And then the last, I don't know, three quarters of a mile or mile or so is all off trail. It's bushwhacking. First, you hike through this really dense forest with these sticks all over the ground, then through these weird bushes that just shred your legs, and then you get up on these boulder fields and you climb over these boulders up to the summit. It took as many hours to get to the top yesterday, but as we were kind of in that open boulder field area, there's no shade. We're up above 6,500 6, feet. The mountain's a little over 7,000 feet tall, and it gets hot. And it was like between around 11 o'clock, about the time we finally hit the summit, and you've got that sun baking down on you. And there was one particular person on this trip who, who got about 100 feet from the summit. And I'm like, yes, you guys are killing it. You know, I'm watching everyone scramble up the rocks. And then this one particular person whose name I won't mention, and uh, he's like, no, I'm good. I'm like, what do you mean you're good? He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done right here. I don't need to go any further. I'm like, mm, yeah, you do. You're not stopping 100 feet from the summit. You've hiked 4.99 miles. You're going to get to the summit. So I, I just start hurling. Um, I don't think I was there. It's wrong to say insults, but I was just like really trying to encourage this young man. You can do this. You got this far. Come on, don't stop. Now the, the peak is right here. The, the payoff, the whole thing, it's right here. Don't stop. And so... Pretty soon, as a tough little dude, he got up and he started scrambling up the rocks. I'm screaming at him, don't stop now. Don't give up. Don't turn your back. I, I told him many times, you're going to regret it if you do. Finish. 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 One of the other climbers uh, said, I think, something to the effect of that was positive and beneficial peer pressure. I'm like, yeah, I think it was too. I don't think it was public shame or ridicule. But that call, that call, that don't stop, don't give up, don't turn back, you're going to regret it the rest of your life if you do. Finish, finish, finish. That call is how the book of Hebrews operates. This is essentially what the author has been saying to his church for 13 chapters. One scholar puts it this way. He said, Hebrews was written for one purpose, to encourage Christians, to urge Christians in tough circumstances to keep their faith anchored to the truth as revealed in Christ. I've read that previously. Don't you find that in your life you need encouragers in your corner? I can tell you how many times I've talked to, to married couples and, and, and I think, you know, men, we're pretty simple, we're pretty straightforward and I tell wives all the time, you know what your husband needs? He needs lots of things. I don't know the particularities of your relationship, but I can tell you pretty much every man I know needs a cheerleader. They need someone who believes in them, who's going to speak positive truths into their life, who's going to say, I got you, I got your back, you can do this, you're, you're strong enough, I'm with you, I believe in you. We need that. And, and, and men and women alike, children and parents, we need encouragement in our lives. We need someone to, to come alongside of us like we read in chapter 12 and, and to help us lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees. We need people in our lives who make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. We need people who will come into our life, even at our worst moments, and look us in the eyes and say, man, I know that your heart is broken. 
I, I know that you're disappointed. I know that you have an ache you can't quite put your finger on. I know it's tempting to abandon your Christian values and turn back to your old way of life. I understand that it may seem easier to go back, but don't stop now. Don't give up. Don't turn back. You're going to regret it the rest of your life. Finish. 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 We need those people in our life. The author of Hebrews, that is exactly the role he is fulfilling in the life of this church, but also by God's infinite wisdom. He's inspired these words to be spoken over us today. We need to be encouraged just like they need to be encouraged. Church, do you need to hear this today? Don't give up. Don't stop. Don't turn back. You regret it the rest of your life if you do. God has you on a path. Pursue. Grab hold of him. Fix your eyes on him. Finish the race. Finish, finish, finish. Keep your faith anchored to the truth as revealed in Christ. This is the message of Hebrews. Thank God. Praise God for that message. If you were here last Sunday, we, we look back at chapter 12, and we really believe that the last two verses of chapter 12 informed how we're supposed to read this final chapter. The same is true for today. If you look at chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, the, the therefore summation of the chapter, the author says to his audience, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and, let us, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And if you were here last Sunday, we talked about how chapter 12 ended with an intensely vertical call to the reader. A vertical call. Fix our eyes on him. We, we are to cling to this unshakable kingdom and offer up worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And then as chapter 13 began, the author began to provide intensely horizontal exhortations. And so we went back to the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. We believe the order of that is intentional. We see the same order in the Ten Commandments. So if you were here last Sunday, we basically summarized verses 1 through 9 with a simple phrase that we believe the author was saying that true faith leads to true living. True faith, a vertical faith, the worship of God with reverence and awe, the outflow of that, the overflow of that is going to lead to true living in the world around us. We could, that could be the summary of today's passage as well. The way of the worshiper last week, as we learned, was that they love one another. They show hospitality to the stranger. Verse 3 told us that we are to care for the afflicted. We studied that last Sunday. We're to have a high view of marriage. We're to be content with the things that God has given us. And we're to be steadfast in our faith. That's the way of the worshiper. And that was my sermon title last week. I was going to call today's sermon the way of the worshiper part two. But the sequel's never as good as the original. So I decided to call my sermon today, Be Anchored to the Truth of Christ. But the same is true last week as is this week. The same truth. The one who clings with gratitude to the unshakable kingdom of Christ, the one who offers acceptable worship with reverence and awe, that person will persevere and they will live in such a way in their perseverance that God is glorified. And as Kent Hughes puts it last week, he said, so the question that our text answers is this. Understanding that God is both the consuming fire of Mount Sinai and the consuming love of Mount Zion, he answers this question. How shall we now outlive? And we just continue with those exhortations today. 
Said another way, the person who clings with gratitude to the unshakable kingdom of Christ, who offers acceptable worship with reverence and awe, that person will live in such a way that they will be anchored in faith to the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. So we have four exhortations I want us to look at today. Four things. The text breaks out into four, actually five little categories. But we're going to look at the four encouragements or imperatives or exhortations of the author. And I want to remind you that we have this really cool feature that I kind of forgot about. If you go to our app, if you have our church app, at the homepage of our church app, there's a little icon that says, um, take notes or sermon notes. If you click on that, you can take, take digital notes and it's pretty cool. And you can actually email yourself the PDF copy later. It's just a really cool way if you're a note taker to, to digitalize your notes from day one. And that's available every single week. Anyways, commercial over. First thing I want you to write down. The way of the worshiper, verses 10 to 14, is to let go of this world and cling to Christ. The way of the worshiper is to let go of this world and cling to Christ. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, Jesus, and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so in the previous verses, the author is speaking about some foods and, and, and foods as it pertains to the Old Covenant. And he's basically saying that the foods of the Old Covenant didn't profit anybody because they never supplied grace to anybody. They were just external. In fact, if you go to Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10, the author says, according to the Old Covenant arrangement, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the, the conscience of the worshiper. He's already exposed how the old covenant is insufficient. He said those old foods and those old customs, those old systems of the old covenant in verse 10 of chapter 9, they deal only with food and drink and various washing regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Well, the time of reformation has come. Jesus came with a new covenant. And the message here is that those who anchor their faith to the truth of Christ have a far better altar than the one mentioned in the Old Covenant. The author's not thinking of a literal altar as he talks about this in, in verse 11. The altar where sacrifices were offered in the Old Covenant, it simply points to a better altar where Christ was sacrificed for our sins. This is just pointing us to the sacrifice of Jesus. The author's not thinking of a literal altar in heaven here. Rather, he's referring to Christ's sacrifice. And if you go back and you consider the argument of the author up to this point, he's taken a lot of space in this letter to his, his church to help them understand the, the breadth of the sacrifice of Jesus. He has provided extensive explanation as to the power and to the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. And so he's talking about an altar in these first few verses here, and, and it's a colorful way of describing the grace believers enjoy through the sacrifice of Christ. The altar and food of Jesus are far better than the altar and food of the Old Covenant. That's what he's saying. And that gets us to this application statement in verse 13, the imperative or the, the exhortation. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. In the Old Testament, being outside the camp, it meant that someone was excluded from the place where God specifically dwelt with his people. To be excluded or set outside of the camp, it meant that you were unclean and you weren't allowed in the camp. It was a shameful thing. And as we look at the sacrifice of Christ, as he was sent outside of the city gates, outside of the walls of Jerusalem, he went out there and he was hung on a cross between two thieves, though he himself didn't know sin. He became sin. He, he bore our sin. He became a curse for us 
that we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus endured reproach. And, And so will we, the author says. In fact, we need to plan on it. That word reproach is a Greek word that simply means a reproach such as Christ suffered for the cause of God from his enemies. This is a reproach that is aimed at those who stand for Jesus. And we had a conversation in sermon development about how maybe sometimes we get a little bit confused about what reproach for Christ is. It's not standing for a political ideology, though I think we should stand for political ideologies. I think we need to be engaged as civil servants, engaged as citizens of 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 an awesome country. This is a reproach that is directed at those specifically who stand for Jesus Christ. And, and, we're to, and we're to welcome that. Let us go to him outside the camp and let us also bear the reproach that he endured. And we first saw the word reproach all the way back in chapter 11 when the author was going through the hall of faith and he was mentioning all these great figures in the Old Testament who were example, examples of persevering faith. And he mentioned Moses and actually dedicated a lot of space in chapter 11 to giving us a kind of an exposition of the life of Moses. And he said in chapter 11, verse 26, that Moses considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking to, for he was looking to the reward. And and so so the idea here is we, we see this word reproach being used again. We're automatically connecting it to the word it was used just in the previous two chapters. And we look at the life of Moses, and Moses was willing to give up the pleasure of belonging to those who enjoyed nobility and power in Egypt. He was a part of Pharaoh's household. Think of all the opulence and the benefit that came from that. But instead he chose to bear the reproach of Christ. Same word. Similarly, the readers that he's writing to, the original audience, they had also endured reproach. We read about that in chapter 10. They they endured reproach for their faith in Christ. But now the author tells them that you need to renew your commitment to Jesus and that may very well mean a willingness to continue to suffer for his sake. Now we know how history unfolds. We know that when Nero came to power, it was horrific for Christians in the first century. We know that the Roman Empire was crushing in their persecution of the church for centuries. So the author is saying this to them then, but also saying it to us today. The implication for you and for me is that we too must be willing to bear the reproach of Christ. The same reproach that he endured for, for, for standing for truth, he was nailed to a cross for it. We have to be willing to do that. That's what the author says. We have to be willing and eager to leave behind the love of this world and the desire for approval that all of us have. We want the world to approve us. And we need to be willing to embrace the reproach of Christ, emulating Jesus' response to his shameful sufferings. That's a quote directly from the ESV Study Bible. And as we do that, we've been given instruction already. In chapter 12, how do we do that? How do, how do you and I do that? How do we, in a world where we are going to be increasingly persecuted for our faith in Jesus, how do we endure when real persecution begins to come? Well, we look to Jesus. Romans, or Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you and I may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We, how do we do it? Well, we, we keep our faith anchored to the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. That's how we do it. That's how we, that's how we let go of this world and cling to Christ. 
And then if you read verse 14, you sort of see the indicative, or the, yeah, the indicative. The imperative is to bear the reproach of Christ, but the indicative, like kind of the reason why or how we can do this, the author tells us, for here in this life, on this side of glory, we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that's to come. That's all of us in Christ. We, we seek a city to come. We, we look forward with great anticipation of the consummation of all things. And that's the same thing we read about Moses in chapter 11. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. We also are to look to the city that is to come. We are to, to look for the reward. Christian endurance is founded in a realization that our world within which we live, it is, just, it is a temporary dwelling. There's nothing lasting here. Nothing. We are on route right now to our everlasting home. And so the first thing we learn is the way of the worshiper is to let go of this world and cling to Christ. The person who clings with gratitude to the unshakable kingdom of Christ, who, who is willing to surrender and lay down their, their, the, the things that they are tempted to cling to, financial, political, cultural, whatever, we are to cling with gratitude to the unshakable kingdom of Christ. We are to offer acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe. That person who does that will let go of this world and they will cling to Christ and live in such a way that they will keep their faith anchored to the truth as revealed in Christ Jesus. Second thing we see. Next point in application, as we're given instruction on the way of the worshiper, is to offer continual praises to God. That's what the author says in verses 15 and 16. He encourages his audience, them, then, us today, to offer continual praises to God. Look at verse 15. He says, through him, through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Now, if you think of the Old Covenant, the, the original audience, that he was, uh, you know, he, he was helping the original audience see that the, the, the Old Covenant was obsolete and the, the New Covenant had taken its place. And unlike the Old Covenant and the many sacrifices that were offered for atonement, worship in the New Covenant is Christ-centered. Christ has already atoned for sin, so we don't need to, we don't need to offer more animal sacrifice Christ has secured final forgiveness with his once and for all sacrifice. So now the instruction to, to New Testament Christians, to New Covenant Christians, is, is that our offering, our sacrifice, it looks different. It's no longer animals. Christians are to offer up a sacrifice of praise. That's a sacrifice. Paul says in Romans 12 that, that we ourselves are living sacrifices when we give ourselves fully over to God. In the Old Covenant, burnt offerings were offered up daily. In the New Covenant, our lives are to be a praise offering daily. A lot of scholars have seen a strong link between this language and what we read in Psalm 50. It's a psalm of Asaph. In Psalm 50, verses 11 through 14, the, the, the psalmist writes about this. He says, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. For if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No. Offer to God a sacrifice of praise and perform your vows to the Most High. 
And so as we think about all that we have learned, and just if, if we just had the book of Hebrews to, to know about Christ, to come to, come to understand him and his sufficiency, we would have so much fodder to speak praises from our lips for the rest of our lives if we just had Hebrews. The author says that, that these sacrifices of praise, they are, they are fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's simply men and women who, who recognize him for who he is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and the truth of that spills out of our mouths. It's a fruit of our lips. Secondly, the, the sacrifice that we are to make, this offering of praise, is, is to do good and to share what you have. In fact, the author says that both of those, the fruit of the lips and the fruit of the hands, they, they, are, they are sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Yesterday on my way back down from the mountain, I had a couple uh, passengers in my car and we were talking about, maybe it was the way up the mountain, we were talking about worship music and I can get pretty snobby and snotty when we start talking about worship music because I just really, I found the older I get, I just very much gravitate towards worship music that has um, the word you uh, in it. when it's speaking back to God and giving praise for his attributes, I struggle with worship music that speaks more about the benefit I have from it, though that's, it's okay to, to sing about the benefits of, of God's grace in our lives. I just find personally, I, music that's more, that, that draws me more into authentic worship in my heart and mind is, is music that just speaks of the attributes of God in his son. That, that, that displays greatness in his beauty and his love and his grace. That's the kind, that's the, I want to sing those songs. I want to sing songs that uphold the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the mercy of God, the, the grace of God. I want to sing those songs. I want to say true things back to God about who he is that, that have transformed and saved me. I want to speak about the truth of the covenant, the better covenant that Jesus is currently mediating on my behalf. I want to sing about the truth of his once and for all sacrifice at the cross. I want to sing about how right now our Savior is seated on heaven's throne, mediating a better covenant and interceding on our behalf. I want to sing songs that speak of the the truth of who he is and what he has done. As we look to him and anchor our faith in him, continually the fruit of our lips is to be praised that speaks of him and fruit of our hands that serves others in his name. The things that we say, the good that we do, the way in which we share with others will all be a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. I read this week that when Christians realize that such things actually bring joy to God, that they're pleasing to Him, they are all the more motivated to do them. And they too find joy in the process. And so the way of the worshiper is to let go of this world and cling to Christ. The way of the worshiper is to offer continual praise to God. And I'll say it again. The person who clings with gratitude to the unshakable kingdom of Christ, the person who offers acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe, that person will offer continual praises to God. And that person will live in such a way that they will keep their faith anchored to the truth as revealed in Christ. Thirdly, the way of the worshiper is to trust and pray for your godly leaders. The way of the worshiper is to trust and pray for your godly leaders. Look at verses 17 through 19. Look at the imperative here at the beginning of verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Goes on to call them to pray for him personally. And as we talked about this this week, and as I meditated on this verse, the idea here 
is that these leaders to whom the author is calling his audience to obey and submit, they're godly leaders. I think about this in marriage all the time. My wife and I talk about this all the time. It's like sometimes when you're, when you're, when you're exposing someone to the Christian worldview of marriage and the idea of headship comes up because our world doesn't understand the view of headship in marriage, male headship, and, and that word submit comes into the marriage relationship. It's like it's a, it's a four-letter word. Like no one's going to tell me to submit to anybody. But I'm like, listen, you're viewing this wrong. If he is, a, if he is the chief servant in your home, if he is, has Christ-like love for you, if he exemplifies a servant heart, he's the kind of man you will say, oh my goodness, I want to I submit myself to this man. I can follow this man. I can trust this man. This is the picture of, of godly leaders that were being encouraged. Well, the original audience was being encouraged to submit and, and obey to these leaders. They were godly leaders who held the sound doctrine. They, they weren't tyrants. They weren't authoritative jerks. They, they humbly served the flock as under shepherds. They held tightly to the word of God. And I was reminded as I was going through this, it's like, even like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm to live under submission. God has, God has elders over me at Heritage. I'm one of the elders, but I sit under the authority of the elders I serve with, thank God. And I think to myself, it's like, I'm not sitting under the man. I sit under the, like, they, they represent God in my life. They're God-appointed elders, and, they, and, and, and I'm submitting to the word of God. They speak over my life. I'm not pledging allegiance to a human being and his ideals, I'm, I'm putting myself under godly authority that's been ordained and set up by the church, men and women who, who cling to the truth of God's word. I got a phone call just yesterday, actually, from my old church, and, and it was a, a, a couple my wife and I had, had worked with and ministered to for years. They're going through a very difficult season in their marriage, and so one of the elders, the current elders from our church in Milwaukee, asked to have an appointment with my wife and I, and so we hopped in on a Zoom yesterday, and godly man, and we even just love this couple. There's just some things going on in their marriage that aren't great, and it's been years and years and years, and they're trying to get some information and trying to figure out how to shepherd this couple, and there's actually some church discipline that's involved in this process, and so Becky and I are trying to just be open books about our relationship with this couple as they seek to, to, to serve them and, and minister to them. And then at the end, he's like, do you have anything else you want to say? And I was like, yeah, I just want to remind you what an elder is to look like in a situation like this. I, I want to, so we, we just went to 1 Peter 5. I just read the, the words of 1 Peter 5 over, over this elder. I just wanted him to hear these words. And he knew it. And I knew he's a good man. He's a godly man. I wanted these words about how an elder is to conduct himself, how a leader, the kind of leader that we are to submit to and obey, what they look like. Here's what, here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 5. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. I exhort you, elders, shepherd the flock that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Oh, what great marching orders for leaders in the church. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I know there's probably some of you in here who've got some wounds from some overzealous church leaders. And I, and I guarantee you, if you were to interview the people that I've, sh I've shepherded over the last 25 years, you'd probably get some uh, unattractive stories about some of the ways I've failed as a leader. I'm a, I'm, I'm a fallible man. All leaders are fallible, but... 
Like, is there confession and repentance? Is there humility? Is there a willingness to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, but being examples? That's the kind of leadership that we are called to sub- submit to and surrender to. And, and Pastor Sam Peck from Philippi, he was studying with us this week, and he, he noticed two things in this that I thought were just really insightful. He said, notice that the word leaders is plural. There's not a tyrant here. There's not a king. There's not one man at the top. There's, there's a plurality of leadership that existed in, th- in this small church. That's important. And notice the other thing. You don't see the name of a single leader, do you? Not a single name is mentioned. Because it's not about the, the man or the woman. It's about the leader. It's about who they represent. It's about the word that they uphold. So encouraging for me to see that this week. My old mentor and pastor, Gary Strike, he used to tell me over and over again, Paul, there's only room for one insecure leader at the top. Never forgotten those words. There's a famous quote from this old German uh, philosopher, I think. His name was Nicholas Ludwig, and he, he famously said that our job as ministers of the gospel is to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Oh boy, I want that to be true of my life. Leaders are called to serve in plurality, in community, and in humility. And I, and I, and I, I think with that framework, we, we then read these words anew that the author tells us. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I think about that text all the time. If there's one verse in the Bible that keeps me up at night, this is the one. This is the one. As a man who's chosen to be a shepherd uh, uh, for 22 years, 23 years, um, I will give an account to God for the way in which I led the people of God. And that, that, that keeps me up at night. Honestly, it, it, it literally does. If I talk to my pe- fellow pastors and we, Jeremy, I'm looking at you out there. I know you and I have had these conversations where you're laying in bed at night and all of a sudden a name or a face or a person or a situation comes to your mind and you're like, <gasps> and, and like, I need to call them. I, need, I, I, I think I forgot to, I think they're hurting. And we just, you just, you have this burden to shepherd these people that God has put under your care. It's a deep, deep burden. I'll have to give an account to God one day for the manner in which I kept watch over your soul. That's sobering. And I think sometimes if we can have a two-way conversation, I know that in all unique cultures, there's church culture, and there's a unique church culture in Southern Oregon that I'm still getting used to. And it's, it's, I would call it an open-handed philosophy of church involvement and attendance. And I think there's some really beautiful parts about that because I see the body of Christ is really linked here in a cool way. Many local churches sort of together for the gospel. I love that. One of the concerns about that is I really struggle to know how to live out the implications of this passage if there's, n- if there's no commitment to the local church. If you're not a regular committed part of a local body, to whom are you to obey and submit to? If you've made it okay in your heart and mind to walk in and out of the church at will, a year here, two years there, six months here, and never really put yourself under authority or leadership, how do you, how do you live out your part of this passage? Because the passage says that obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. Like, who are you to obey and submit to if you're not under any authority? And likewise, if I don't know who's under my authority, how am I to give an account? So I think about this a lot, actually, as we as elders have been wrestling for 
three years since I got here, I'm trying to finalize and clean up the language we have around membership. Honestly, it's this verse that's one of the primary backdrops of my mind when I think about membership, because I want to know who I'm going to be giving an account to, because I care about your souls, I care about your life, I care about where God is leading you and what's going on in your world, and I don't want to domineer over anybody. I don't have, I'm not smart enough for that. But with humility, I know our elder board, we simply want to shepherd the flock that God has put in our care. We want to be the kind of men who walk in humility, who you can look to and say, I can submit to that leadership. That's godly leadership. I, I, can, I can obey that direction because they're not, they're not men who are tyrants. They're men who stand for God and they stand on his word. And that's the kind of family I want to be a part of. And I can't help but laugh at how verse 17 ends. Now remember, this is a guy who likely was writing a letter to his own church. This is likely the people he shepherded. And he says, let them do this. Let them obey and submit to the leaders with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I think that's a little jab to his church. I was thinking if, if Jeremy, Aaron, and I are the elders, if we got in the habit of writing letters to the people of our church, we could just say, hey, could you, could you just, you know, shut up and listen? <laughs> and uh, could you just obey and submit? Is that too much to ask? Uh, no, we would never do that. We would never do that. And then we see this really cool, uh, just a personal appeal he, he gives to his church. He says, pray for us. For we're sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. There's so much intimacy in, those, in, that, in that verse, those two verses. He's like, no, we've been honorable. We have a clear conscience. I just want to be restored to you. He's speaking like they know him. They know his heart. This is a pastor who knows his sheep, and he's got a friendship with them. He's, a, he's, a, he's someone they can trust, and that's why I use the word trust in my sermon point today. Trust and pray for your godly leaders, because... It's hard to obey and submit to a leader that you do not trust. Are they standing on God's word? Are they humble men and humble women who are empowered by the Holy Spirit? Do they walk in humility? Yes, I can submit to that. They're going to hold me accountable. I can hold them accountable. We're going to journey towards Jesus together. And so the way of the worshiper is to let go of this world and cling to Christ. It's to, to offer continual praises to God. It's to trust and pray for your godly leaders. And the person who clings with gratitude to the unshakable kingdom of Christ, the, the person who offers up acceptable worship with reverence and awe, that person will trust and pray for their godly leaders. That person will live in such a way that they will keep their faith anchored to the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. And finally, final point of the sermon is simply this. The way of the worshiper is blessed and equipped. The way of the worshiper is blessed and equipped by God. Look at verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may that God, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In your Bible, very likely you have a little heading above those verses 20 and 22, 20 and 21. It says benediction. Benediction is, is, a, is, a, is a spoken or a, a written blessing over people, usually in a religious context. In this clay, case, this benediction, this blessing, it's for the author's audience. These are the people he knows and loves. He's writing a letter to them, but it's also for us. Remember, though this letter wasn't written to us, it was written for us. And this is a description of how God blesses the one whom he loves, or the ones whom he loves. The ones who keep their faith anchored 
to the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. And these two verses are incredible. I mean, these, these two verses, we sat and meditated on these verses on Tuesday as we were studying this passage as a team, Dr. Townsend and Jeremy and, and Sam and Kathy and I. They're incredible. And I just think of all of the truth that is contained in this letter that are sort of summarized in this benediction. We hear of his peace in this benediction. Now may the God of peace, the author says. Oh, our God is a God of peace. Shalom. Many commentators have seen a connection here to Jeremiah 29, 11, a verse no doubt many of you know, the, this, this famous verse where God speaks over Israel as they're on the verge of going through catastrophe. And he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare or peace, shalom, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That, that word shalom is it, simply this picture of completeness or soundness or welfare. It's, it's peace. It's being put back together to the glory of God. This is God's will for his people. I love what Kent Hughes said. He said, the truth for all of us who are children of God is that our God is the God of peace. And his plans for every one of us are for shalom, for well-being. None of his children are an exception and never will be. This is God's will for everybody who is in Christ, our peace. He is the God of peace. We also read of his eternal covenant in, in this benediction. By the blood of his covenant, it says at the end of verse 20. His covenant promises are eternal. They're solid ground. They're unchanging, unbreakable, immutable, everlasting. Jeremiah 31, as God speaks of his new covenant, he's speaking prophetic promise of his new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write on it and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. This covenant has been established by the blood of the ultimate lamb. It was the atoning death of Christ that has ratified and verified, and it was ratified and verified by, by the resurrection of Christ. No matter what may come, remember this, no matter what may come in our lives, God's new covenant promises will never change or fail ever. They're immutable, they're unchanging, they're everlasting, they're eternal. And it's granted to his children. And then we read in this benediction of his risen and living chief shepherd. Look at the middle of verse 21. Or the middle of verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. So on and so forth. He is our risen shepherd. And he's actively caring for us today. He is exalted and yet humble. And he's enthroned and yet approachable. We can confidently draw near to the throne of grace, the author says earlier. We, we have his peace. We have his unbreakable, immutable, immutable internal promises. We have his risen shepherd's care. He is the great shepherd of the sheep, a shepherd who wants to care for his people. And we have his peace, his promise, and his care. And I can't help but notice that in the concluding of this this book and in a chapter filled with all these exhortations and imperatives to the people the letter's written to, the final imperative or the final verb, the final thing that needs to get done is actually God's to do. May the God of peace, he says in verse 21, equip you. May God do the equipping. He gives us nine things that we've studied over the last two weeks. We, we've learned that, that we are to have 
love for one another, hospitality for the stranger, care for the afflicted, a high view of marriage. We're to be content with what he's given us. We're to have a steadfastness of faith. We're to let go of this world and cling to Christ. We're to offer continual praises to God. We're to trust and pray for our godly leaders. Nine things he's given us to do. And the very final thing we read is, may the God of peace equip you to do it. He's the one that does it in you. This is not a checklist that we can do apart from the Spirit of God giving us ability and, and, and empowerment and, and, and desire and, and, and conviction to live the way God has called us to live. He does it in us and through us. May the God of peace equip you, church, you believer, with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, thank God this is not an exercise in self-will because I don't have it. I don't have it. He is the one who equips you with all that you need. He gives you the tools for doing his will. We put ourselves in a position of obedience and we beg him in prayer. We surrender our lives. We meet with him in scripture. We embed ourselves in community. We walk in obedience. He does it in us and through us. He equips us. It is through the power of Jesus Christ that he produces in you and me every good thing that is pleasing to him. He is the one who receives glory, by the way, when it happens forever and ever. Amen. I just hear the words of Jesus in John 15, 5, echoing in my ears. Jesus said, I am the vine, yes, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So this is how the author chooses to end his letter. He gives us a depiction of the way of the worshiper. Let go of this world and cling to Christ. Offer continual praise to God. Trust and pray for your godly leaders. But the way is blessed and equipped by God. And so the person who clings with gratitude to the unshakable kingdom of God, the person who offers up acceptable worship with reverence and awe, that person will be blessed and equipped by God and they will live in such a way that they keep their faith anchored to the truth as revealed in Christ. And lastly, we just see his little comments at the end of the letters, little postscript. Verses 22 through 25. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. For I've written you briefly. Yeah, right. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if you come soon. Greet all your leaders. That's the third time he mentions leaders in the, in the chapter. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. And as someone pointed out this on Tuesday also, this is just a right, great reminder that this is just a letter written to real people, just like you and me, real people, real people trying to, trying to walk with Jesus, trying to live out their faith. We actually have a name, Timothy, here, very likely, Timothy, that the letters of Paul are addressed to. They lived in a place. We read the place of Italy here. These are, this is not, like, like I think Sam said this also on, on Tuesday, this is not some theology book, some lofty theology book that belongs on a, on a theological library shelf somewhere collecting, collecting dust. This is a letter from someone who loves them, written to people in a real situation. Calling them to live in obedience. Calling them to, to, to walk in the way of a worshiper. I love that. It's, it's a great reminder that our faith is, is a real faith. That's lived out in, in real space, in real time. So is theirs, so is ours. And in these last days, he has spoken by his sons to church one last time. Can I just encourage you, don't stop now. Don't give up. Don't turn back. You'll regret it the rest of your life. Finish, finish, finish the race. 
Keep your faith anchored to the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for this book and for the encouragement in each of our lives that it's been. God, I can just personally, God, I'm so grateful for this this book and this study in the last 10 months as we've journeyed through it, God, and the way you've worked in me and through me. And God, the way you're, you're continuing to mold and sanctify me, God, would you remind all of us today this simple exhortation that we, that we would keep our faith anchored in the truth that has been revealed to us in and through the Son of God. God, by your Spirit now, would you breathe these words into us? Don't stop now. Don't give up. Don't turn back. God, may we, may we finish the race that you have put before us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.